Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today is a woman of many talents, Erin Gilpin is of mixed Cremetee, Filipina, Irish, and Scottish ancestry. She's an educator, facilitator, birth doula, bead worker. She's the founder of Indigenous Women Climb, an online community to decolonize the outdoor space. She's also just finished her PhD, and that is barely half of it. I met Erin last year. I was taking part in a three-minute thesis competition. I thought I had a pretty good chance until I heard her speak. She talked that day about what she describes as embodied governance and land-based wellness. She won the heat, and then she placed second overall. A bit of heads up, due to the times we're in, the audio starts a little more compressed on Aaron's end. It's probably due to the fact that bandwidth is a little harder to come by these days, and, and that's my fault, not hers. It does improve things clear up by around the 13-minute mark, but I would suggest you stick around to hear the first part of her story. Here it is. I'm going to start off with something entirely unrelated to any of the work that you're doing, but uh, <laughs> but I think it has something to do with, with who you are. Uh, popcorn. You're a popcorn fan, I understand. Uh, <laughs> seasoning or no seasoning? Oh, <laughs> literally the best question and the best way to start off this chat. Very important question, especially when I think uh, defining who I am as a person. Um, <laughs> I'm right now... You know, I'm all about stovetop popcorn with coconut oil and like salt. But I, and I've heard about nutritional yeast and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, man, I like it salty and buttery and that's it. But I've been putting it on lately and I've been really enjoying it. <laughs> so <laughs> now I've gone West Coast and I'm putting on nutritional yeast. <laughs> that's, that's what happens yeah. when you move out here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I've, I've tried the nutritional yeast. I've not tried coconut oil. So I'll have to try implementing that uh, next yeah. time around. Yeah. Oh, so good. It's so good. <laughs> uh, Sweetgrass and mangoes. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so Sweetgrass and Mangoes is the name of my, I guess it started off as just really the name of my website where I started posting photos and sharing a little bit more about uh, the work I do and just was able to refer folks to my work as a birthula, but also some of the beadwork that I do for commissions and things like that. And Sweetgrass and Mangoes is, first of all, I, when I say those words out loud, I think visually it brings these really beautiful images of like the sweetness of the land, you know, sweet grass is a part of my Cremate ancestry um, um, and my genealogy, which links me to the prairies and it draws me right back there. It's a very visceral connection that sweet grass brings when I smudge with it and I smell it. And, um, and then mangoes is um, a part of my Filipino genealogy and connection to the islands. And they're just, yeah, it kind of, is just a representation of my, of my mixed ancestry and also um, the sweetness of the different lands that, that my people come from. So I just really like the imagery. I like the words together and it, and it's uh, the, the name of my website. So <laughs> that's what I, <laughs> uh, you wear a lot of different hats. You know, you just finished your PhD. You're an, an educator, a bead worker, a, a birth doula, a climber. Before we get into any of that stuff, Maybe just talk a little bit about getting to where you are today. What were you like as a kid and, and where was home for you growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in southwestern Ontario, outside of London, Ontario. Um, 
in a place called Komoka, and that is on the traditional territories of Chippewa and the Thames, Oneida First Nations, and Delaware Muncie First Nations. And um, yeah, that's where my parents met in high school, and that's where we were born and raised. And as a kid, I guess, I, you know, if you were to ask my parents, they would just tell you that I was real happy all the time. And so I think that's probably a characteristic of who I am. I'm, I'm a pretty naturally positive person. And um, my mom would always tell me that I'm her hummingbird because I'm just like, uh, my, my gift is my joy is something that she would say. So I guess that's, uh, yeah, I was always just excited to meet people and, and kind of, I was always excited to learn. I loved uh, just being active and definitely um, found myself in a lot of alone time as well outside. And so my whole upbringing was really, I think, contextualized in my relationship with my sister. In a lot of ways, she's um, the way that I began to, you know, like understand the world was through my relationship with her. And that relationship really informs and teaches me a lot Um it kind of guides a lot of the work that I do as well. And uh, yeah, so I mean, like I was a happy kid and that's probably my, which really drove my deeper hunger and desire to uh, fall in love with the world around me. Um, I mean, after high school, I had the opportunity to do a student youth exchange. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, we didn't have the opportunity to choose where we were going. We had like the chance to maybe, you know, put your preferences. And I put these preferences and I remember putting like India and Iceland and I had no idea. Like as a 16 year old, I was like, I don't know, like I'll go anywhere, you know, but, and I remember I had a couple friends who were like, go to Brazil. Cause we were really, we were really big soccer players at that time. Mm-hmm. And they're like, go to Brazil. Like, you're, like look at all their soccer. And I was like, what's Brazil? Like, I had no idea, right? Like, I, it, in my world, it was a very small world at that time. And um, anyways, the organization chose for me, and I ended up traveling to Brazil the year after high school, and that was really, I think, the turning point um, in a lot of different ways in terms of me transitioning from a young person to a young adult and then me transitioning from a small community to opening my eyes to the larger world and in me understanding myself and through like smaller questions that I may have asked in terms of understanding who I am to entering into asking larger questions about larger societal um, relational and identity issues in a larger context, global context. So that was really, I, I see that as the doorway to kind of everything else that I, that I do today. Mm. So you're growing up in Kamoka, outside of London, Ontario. Tell me about going from there to Brazil. Yeah, um, saying goodbye to my family at the airport when I was 17 was the hardest. I remember it was the hardest thing I ever had done in my life. I mean, we didn't know when we'd see each other again. And at that point, I was leaving and I understood that I would see them in maybe a year. And I was going to this place that I really had no reference for. All that I knew, the only word that I knew in Portuguese at the time was faca, which is nice because it sounded like the F word. And so that's like my <laughs> only, I was like, oh, cool, I can say this word, you know. <laughs> it's like I didn't know anything at all. And the program that I went with, which was a Rotary Youth Exchange, they had some um, 
like culture, uh, cross-cultural learning opportunities and preparedness, you know, not courses, but like opportunities and stuff that they, that we had, that we went through beforehand. And so I had understood that there would be moments of really missing home. There'd be moments where different cultural difference may feel romantic and exciting at first, but then it could feel really difficult and it would just be kind of like a day by day changing thing. Also acknowledging like at 17 years old, there's also a lot of internal changes going on too, Hmm. but I had no expectations because I just couldn't even imagine or visualize or had no reference point of what going to those territories meant going to those lands meant I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know what they felt like, but I had lived with two different families in my exchange and had met other exchange students from all over the world and had also some real exposure to different uh, experiences of socio and economic and political manifestations of structural oppression. And so uh, it's kind of like a side story, but I had, I was, uh, it's, it's a long story actually, but um, <laughs> I, I won't get too much into it. But short story is I, along with a couple others, were caught up in an armed conflict and we were held at gunpoint. And it was this really big life-changing moment where I didn't know in that moment if I was going to live or die. And it was, a I, as a young person, the moment that everything happened and everything dissipated and I went to bed that that night, I was just kind of thrown into a deeper understanding of the fragile, precarious lines between how we understand life and death, you know, whatever that may be. And it kind of launched me into wanting to live my life to the fullest and not meaning like going out and traveling and living the world and taking, but contemplating what are my roles and responsibilities in this world and that inevitably led me into asking more questions that had to do with social justice that had to do with understanding historical and social implications of systems of violence and oppression and all this different stuff that I had I later on learned how to talk about and name but at that time I just really wanted to know what would push certain people to hold other people up by, you know, like to be violent, essentially, because I knew that they, those people were connected to families and those people were doing these things because of other reasons. And I wanted to know why. So those questions led me into starting my undergraduate degree in a program called Social Justice and Peace Studies. And that was really the place where I was able to ask those questions in a more structured and supported way uh, upon returning home from my exchange. So you ask yourself the question, what is my responsibility in life, I suppose? What what sort of answers did you find? Yeah, that's a really good, I mean, I think what I later learned through cultural teachings, um, and, and I haven't learned words for this, but I'm sure that there's in maybe in my own language as I'm learning the Cree language or in other languages, I'm sure there are words that actually talk about responsibilities and gifts as the same thing. And that they they differ depending on the context. And so when I think about that question that you just asked, actually my mind goes back to what my mom always told me, like your gift is joy, your gift is you know, your open heart. And sometimes it's a fault, but um, 
I also think that in some ways that it's, it's my responsibility because my, when I think about my responsibilities, I really think about it in a larger, more abstract framework is to just to try to nourish and protect and bring more light into the world. I think there's lots of stuff that has really separated and hurt and severed our relationships to one another and to the land. And so I try to think about, well, how can I be responsible to take care of, to restore and to protect those connections to one another, but to do so in a way that I think really nurtures a sense of lightness and, and um, I love, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what, I, it's hard to kind of describe it, but um, so yeah, I really think that my roles and responsibilities are within kind of like a practice of care and caring for one another. And I, and I really believe in that type of practice, kindness and care and compassion and, and uh, yeah, belonging to one another. Hmm. I, I like that way of thinking of responsibility and gifts as being, if not one and the same, then then close cousins, I suppose, if you will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, talking about uh, this this relationship to land and the things that have severed us from it, I mean, this this kind of links to the PhD work that you just finished and and working on land based wellness. What does that look like, land based wellness? First and foremost, I think that at a very basic level, it means having the ability to access healthy and uh, regenerative land and water. And so that can really inform, you know, how we talk about rights to water, rights to to access healthy land and what that means in terms of um, how land is protected and things like that. I can't necessarily have good relationship to land and waters if those lands and waters are exploited and destroyed and poisoned. And so a lot of it has to do with, well, what type of land and water are we talking about? And what are those relationships, first and foremost, to those places? And then secondly, you know, I think that it really depends on each individual and community's cultural teachings about what it means to have relationship to land and to waters. Because of certain cultural teachings and protocols, I am taught how to engage in relationship in relationships based on respect and reciprocity and regeneration and um, just and consent to the land and waters. And those are cultural teachings that are embedded in my own communities and my own family's ancestral relationship to our homelands and to our home waters as well. And so when I think about, you know, this whole conversation for me in terms of thinking about, well, what does our wellness mean in terms of how we self-govern and what does, you know, where does our wellness come from, from an Indigenous uh, perspective that comes from meaningful and ongoing relationship to place. And that includes land and waters and memories and cultural teachings and place-based knowledge systems. And so those questions came out of my when I turn, returned from Brazil to start my undergraduate degree in social justice and peace studies, I became very involved in Indigenous climate action and um, and youth climate leadership work and things like that. And, and um, I experienced a lot of actually physical panic attacks in, in my in my time in doing that and in the different um, ways in which I was engaging with activism. And I learned that, you know, there was this one point where I had 
be just become overwhelmed with the scale and scope of what I now understand as, you know, neoliberal and colonial enterprise uh, on lands and on waters. And I was just, you know, feeling a little bit suffocated. Like, how can this ever change? How can there be meaningful change in terms of, you know, envisioning and enacting healthy and regenerative futures with the land, not enacting human, you know, enterprise on the land. And it was really overwhelming. And as I mentioned, I'm a very emotional person and I'm a very feeling person. And a lot of times I just couldn't handle the stress of it all and mm. and found myself in these times where I was just gasping for air and like like they were just they were panic attacks. And I learned very quickly that, you know, Aaron, I can't I'm not I'm no good to anyone here crumpled up on my kitchen floor if first and foremost I'm not taking care of myself and I can't take care of anyone unless I feel well and I have energy, right? And so that really became my lens to ask more questions around the interconnectivities between wellness and the roles that, you know, our relationship to land have and how we express our wellness or enact our wellness and how that informs how we take care of one another, which in another way can be understood as governance and, um, and leadership and things like that, kind of more of the political sphere. Hmm. So thinking about your PhD work and uh, your research into land-based wellness, were you looking at particular uh, nations or communities and, and how that plays out? Or what exactly did that thesis look like? Yeah, so I I actually took an international Indigenous approach. So oftentimes when folks think about the context of international relations, they think between state contexts. So Canada and Brazil or the United States and Croatia or whatever it may be. And um, from an Indigenous perspective, we exist within our own nations and our own communities. And so internationally, we already have we and enact and uh, live out treaties between our different nations and that is an international context and so I really wanted to speak to different folks from different nations and so in a lot of ways it is an international approach to indigenous relationships and indigenous expressions of wellness and governance and relationship to land and waters and so I did uh, within this research it's not the the most useful word it's more you know in this learning i spoke to 17 different community members who had different yeah roles and positions in their communities or outside of their communities and urban spaces or more rural spaces and just spoke to to them in in conversations about what it means to be well what what roles does the land have in our wellness and how does do our experiences of wellness inform how we take care of others you know and how we govern our relationships to the world around us so so you're speaking to these people um from different communities what did you learn from them that's you know as you're asking that question i'm looking out of my window and i'm looking at some trees and some you know bushes and shrubs and some little flowers that are blossoming right now and and i wish i could just hold hold up a small branch and just kind of show you and and because I I feel like that's actually that's actually visualizing you know what I what I'd like to say in 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 response to that question and that's every single person described and defined something different like there was an immense amount of diversity Mm-hmm. In terms of how people define, you know, I feel well when, or I define wellness as, or I enact my relationship to land in this way, and I govern myself in these ways, they were all different. And 
it really represented a diversity that's super reflective of biodiversity, you know, that is presented when we look out of our windows and we see the land, you know, you could look at one tree or one branch that I'm looking at now and every single leaf is going to be different. But of course, they're all super connected and they're all rooted down into something that is feeding them. And so a lot of this research was, you know, meant to create space for people to say, you know, these are the ways that I feel authentically reflects my governance or my wellness or my sexuality or my relationships or my well-being or my futurity. But also, you know, from the research standpoint to kind of step back and look at the themes or the, you know, the the main roots that really um, define what those things are. And so there were absolutely shared components that had to do with, you know, people's experiences with spirit and culture and their own creative enactments of resurgence. And so the reclamation of culture and language and traditional land-based practices, um, Another one was, you know, uh, a theme that came up was who folks feel that they're accountable to or that they belong to or that they're related to. And then ultimately, another theme that came out was also the acknowledgement that knowledge is relational and knowledge is really interconnected with everything that's around us, everything that is in our ancestry and our kinship networks and also in who defines you know our our family networks and in terms of where we are living and what places we're connected to as well and that was a a theme that I describe in my dissertation as which means in Cree that the land gives us our knowledge and the knowledge is what tells us who we are as a people and so I think that what I found that I was experiencing, you know, panic attacks and whatever, because originally when I was really engaging with specific forms of activism was because I actually felt that I was putting myself in a performance or presentation of activism that wasn't necessarily authentic to my own governance and my own wellness. I, as I mentioned, really identify as a caretaker. I really want to take care of people and that's where I thrive and that's where I'm able to maintain energy to continue to to do the work. And so, you know, I, but I felt like I was doing less as if I wasn't on those front lines Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, but because those who are feeding the families and making the food and, you know, being, there when babies are being born are is less public and so i was really trying to understand well why does it feel like it's also less valued in terms of how we govern ourselves but as this research or as this learning shows governance is diverse wellness is diverse it's reflective of the diversity and the biodiversity of the land and each single action each single expression has an important role because it's interconnected to a larger life energy and a larger function. And I think the moment that we can honor that space that each individual leaf or each individual component or person can take, then we can actually all thrive and all grow and regenerate life, you know, and we won't be uh, bogged down by anxiety or stress or not feeling like we're not doing enough. And so it was a really beautiful way just to, I think, honor the diversity of of those expressions as well. Hmm. Part of our relationship to land is also our relationship to the things that we eat, you know, our our food sources. You got to take part in in a garden project with the Sartlip First Nation a while ago. Tell me about how that happened and how it's shaped your relationship with food. 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, so in my master's of Indigenous governance, I had the privilege and the honor to work as a student of the Sartlet First Nation Garden Project to where I learned under the supervision of Mary Hayes and Myrna Crossley. And I was just really there to be to be, you know, a student learner and help with the tending of the gardens and and help with the infrastructure and the maintenance of these gardens and things like that. And I'll say two things to this. One is that my year within the Indigenous Governance Program within the master's program was super intense. We read a lot. There was a lot of information. I had never had the language or the words to consciously and politically uh, express my indigeneity in the ways that they had taught me to or to interrogate colonialism and shape-shifting colonialism in the ways that I had been taught to. And so my mind was full, like it was just almost too full. And so the moment that I stepped out of the classroom and stepped onto the land, I mean, there was a moment where I was planting peas and I was planting one pea at a time. And it was this moment where I was just alone. I was alone for days on end and just kind of like experiencing silence. And I was able to be a visitor on the Sandwich territories. And um, it wasn't really until I was there where a lot of those teachings really, I think, integrated into my knowing in a, in a very different way. In a mm. way that's more reflective of as opposed to cognitive academic inquiry and learning. And I really recognized the role that the land was taking as teacher in my self-growth and in my continual learning outside of the classroom. And that was a really important realization for me as we talk about indigenizing our learning practices and place-based learning and, and things like that. And then secondly, as I witnessed the garden project support and nourish communities' ability to, to feed themselves and to grow their own traditional foods and to use those foods for different practices that had to do with community wellness, I saw the ways in which it also informed their governance, you know, and their strength. And that really leads into Kanaka Maoli scholar, activist, educator, Nolani Goodyear Kapua's words, who says, you know, self-determination can't be divorced from the ability to feed ourselves. And that's a really important phrase, but it's what is demonstrated and modeled by the Sartlet First Nation Garden Project. And I just was able to to witness that. And so that was a really important piece of, of my own learning and absolutely informed, you know, what I what I eat and what I consume in terms of how I think about how my ethics and my responsibilities and my values extend into my relationships also with the land in terms of food and food systems and and how to nourish and foster and support indigenous food systems on the lands that I live on if I'm going to be occupying their territories as a visitor to their lands. And so I think it provides an, an additional place for us to think about how we can express our own wellness and our own governance and relational accountabilities to, to place as well. How has that shaped the things that you put on your plate, if it has? Yeah, um, well, I've been a vegetarian for about, I don't even know, 12 years or so. And that was do that choice was because of the industrial uh, food system and the production of sugar and corn and monocrop and mono agricultural and industry and um, and so it was really my in when I was I, it was when I was 18 years old I decided you know let's 
stop eating meat because that's one small thing that I can do to try to enact m more care towards the land. And from there also, you know, over time, I really, it also comes from a place of care for the lives of the animals as well. And so I wrote a piece one time in this one article called Guts Magazine, and it's called Eating Animals, because I kind of talk about this. I talk about, you know, how we think about eating animals, but also how this also informs how I engage with traditional food systems when my family you know, goes on a moose hunt and what it means when I eat that moose, because I do eat traditional meats and traditional foods when it's gifted to me. And when it's like offered to me, I'll never say no to anything that's put in front of me out of respect for that life and respect for those who put, you know, who did that work. But it's a very different experience when I eat moose, when I know the treaty relationships that my family has when they leave uh, the guts of the moose for the wolves and the and the ravens and all of the different relationships that are involved with that and the way that you know it honors the my elder grandfather and my family when they bring him the moose heart because they he can't hunt anymore and it's a, it's a cultural sign of honor and practice to give that to him and there's so many relationships and so many values embedded within that that small piece of meat that it, it's really reflective of you know what I believe in and so you know being away from from family and living out here I eat generally I, uh, I eat completely plant-based but also am working really hard to to grow our own food so my husband and I are you know we have a, a big garden and we're growing what we can and it's kind of become this really beautiful piece of our lives as well we're growing all of our greens and you know and it, we're really interacting it takes daily interaction to tend for that garden and things like that so we're trying in the best way that we can to also provide sustenance for ourselves so that we can ease off our dependency on the land as well what grows the best in your garden uh right now i mean probably everything's growing really good <laughs> But but our our battle right now is the slugs. I'm like we're trying we're trying to figure out we we're trying different techniques. But uh, yeah, I, I honor those slugs by plucking them out of the garden every morning and chucking them as far as I can into the forest. So I don't know how uh, how ethical that is, but, <laughs> but hopefully uh, they have a good time. Yeah, hopefully that we're we're jumping around. We might be jumping around a bit time wise. There's just so many things I want to get into. Okay. But uh, you've talked already about uh, being a nurturer. Tell me a little bit about how you became a birth doula. What got you started in that? Yeah, I didn't even know birth doulas like were a thing. I, I was like, a what? Like, what is a doula? But when I was younger, I read a book called The Red Tent by Diane Gabaldi or something. I forget her last name. And it was this really cool book and the story of women and this, you know, and the kinship ties of all these different women and it had a couple different birth scenes in this book and I was an avid and am an avid reader you know growing up I'm a huge sci-fi fantasy like nerd I don't know the word that that's just like my favorite place to live in and breathe in and I love reading all these books and um these birth scenes would come up and I just felt something inside of myself like you know, and I had I didn't even know anything about birth. I'd never seen a baby be born. I'm the oldest of all of my cousins, so I've seen lots of babies, but I'm don't not necessarily drawn to babies. It was more so the birth and like the power and the raw I don't even know how to describe it, just the something transforming in that moment. Like it was ceremonial and what I was reading about at least. And so 
that had always stayed with me, but I didn't realize that you could actually learn how to be present at a birth in a in an effective way. And so as I got older into my 20s, I kind of hit this point where I was like, man, if my sister ever has a kid, I want to be there to support her in a way where it's effective and it's efficient and it's culturally grounded and it's, you know, it's what she needs. I want to take care of her in a way that's going to like be really meaningful. And so later on, my sister actually had a friend who reached out and she's like, yo, Aaron, can I crash at your place? I'm doing a birth doula training this weekend. And I was like, oh, what? And so she told me about it and I immediately contacted the lady and I said, you know, this is who I am. I know it's late registration. Is there any way that I can register? And she said, actually, we have a... um we have a grant for Aboriginal people who want to access this training. It's like it's by, based on a trade and you have to help out in these ways and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, OK, sure, I'm in. And then, you know, within a couple of days, I found myself in this circle sitting and talking about and learning about birth. And it was just amazing. And it set me off on like the rest of my life. And so, yeah, so that was kind of how I I learned about birth doulas and being a doula the moment that I sat into a doula workshop to be honest and so <laughs> and so yeah now I've been practicing as a birth support or birth helper for about three years and I've had the privilege to attend um, 14 different births all in different spaces hospital home spaces community spaces land land um, birth it, it, yeah and it's really the it, birthing and climbing are probably my two passions. <laughs> I mean, I could go off on a big, on a tangent on like any one of these things. So I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know where to start and where to end. <laughs> what does decolonial care look like uh, in a birth setting? Yeah, um, decolonial care, I think, means first and foremost, recognizing that um, within a Canadian healthcare system, there are colonial reproductions and relationships that define Canadian healthcare practice and that have created hospital care settings and or healthcare practitioners to feel not safe for Indigenous peoples and or people of colour in the Canadian setting. And, you know, I can only speak to this specific setting. And so, you know, in Canada, we talk a lot about the residential school systems, but we there's not as much uh, public and social consciousness around the Indian hospital care settings. And so I think a de decolonial approach is taking the time to understand the colonial roots and the colonial values that are embedded within our larger institutions, that being educational or healthcare systems, and thinking about how these values have really influenced how relationships are played out in those spaces. And so you know, as recent as when I did my doula care training, a statistic was shared in my training that said uh, Indigenous women, and this was by the instructor, and she was just reading out of a handbook. So it wasn't her knowledge she was sharing. She was sharing research that had validated the claim that Indigenous women have a higher pain tolerance than non-Indigenous women. Mm. And it was put in our doula training and then, you know, and then we continued on. And I was so shocked by what I was hearing that I had to take a breath. Obviously, I was the only um, Indigenous person in that training. And there were no and uh, there were no women of color in that training as well. And it was there was about, I don't know, maybe like 15 of us. 
And I had to put up my hand and say, we need to go back to that statistic because that's an extremely dangerous thing to share. And I, we need to interrogate what, where this comes from and what the roots of this are. And that conversation led into me creating workshops around decolonized healthcare practice within a doula, you know, within doula training and also thinking about um, indigenized care and, you know, doing a little bit more education for birth doulas, which, you know, I, I now do in, in different training capacities. But I mean, like a decolonial approach is interrogating the influences and the ongoing repercussions of colonial values, which are really premised upon uh, norms and societal values and behaviors of heteropatriarchy of assumptions of racial dominance and or superiority of, of one race to another and the creation of institutions which reflect those specific values. And so if we can do the work to understand and unpack what those specific things are, then we can understand how different people experience healthcare and experience support so that we can better support more people in more ways that are more authentic to their cultural teachings and their experiences of wellness and governance in their own bodies. Mm. So you mentioned birthing and climbing <laughs> the two things that uh yeah, that you two super related things <laughs> spend uh spend you know hours talking about how did you get into climbing i got into climbing when i met a boy <laughs> and, like, yeah like doula stuff um i had no idea what climbing was i had never heard of it in my life until i had met who is now my my husband and I saw this thing he was doing and he's a photographer and he would take pictures and and uh, of this of this thing which was climbing and I had no idea what it was and I was like and I asked him I said what is this thing that you're taking all these pictures of like what's going on here and he said this is my sacred place like this is where I enact my like my spirituality this is where I'm on the land this is where I reflect about who I am in the world like this to me is my sacred place and because I that I could feel that being emitted through his photography so I was really drawn to it and I was like oh well I want to try that <laughs> so um so over time and through our relationship he really introduced me to climbing but not through uh, a Western climbing lens, but through an indigenous climbing lens. My partner himself is mixed indigenous, um, Cafuzo, so Afro-indigenous from Brazil. And for him, climbing was something that was, you know, quite elitist in the communities that he saw, but like over time in relationships was able to access it. And um, really it was a time for him to just be really intimate with his homelands and just kind of be on the land. And so that was the my entry point into understanding climbing as being on the land and having conscious connection to land before understanding it through a physical way. So that's, uh, yeah, that's my entry point into it. I mean, I should also say that he made a film about his sister and her relationship with climbing where he really, she really talks about these things. And after seeing that film, that was the moment where I was like, yes, I want to try this. And it was through seeing a film of a woman of color, you know, talk about fear, talk about insecurity, talk about all the different things that come out in climbing. And that was, you know, the thing that made me say, I, I don't know what that is, but I want to try it. Mm -hmm. So you were all in, uh, you know, mentally speaking and, and, and in wanting to try it. How did you actually take to it then? Um, At first, I was like, all in, you know, 
like just jumped right in and I was lead climbing. Like as soon as I started climbing, I had really no fear when I first started because everything was new and I didn't really know what I should be fearing or not. And so that was about six or seven years ago. But I would say that I've been climbing more intentionally over the past three years. And it's interesting to say that because really over the past three years is when I've had an immense amount of fear come up. And so now I'm like, you know, how I take to climbing is I'm really kind of trapped up in my thinking space about it. I'm really aware of all my emotional stuff that comes up. I'm really like feeling a lot of fear. It's a super complex thing in my life right now where... Mm. I'm, um, and maybe it's just reflective of where I am in my life too. You know, I just turned 30 and, you know, maybe it's kind of a transition stage in my life. And, um, but it's, it's definitely an emotional thing right now. And the fear is really frustrating me. It's really tapping into some insecurities and some stuff with self-worth and like wanting to be the climber that I want to be, as opposed to me really kind of accepting the climber that I am right now. And so, I'm kind of all over the place right now. Like, I mean, I I really love it, but it's not as easy and flawless and seamless as I would like it to be. Every time I tie in, especially when I'm lead climbing, it's like it is a life battle. So that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> How did Indigenous Women Climb start? Yeah, it started pretty naturally in how a lot of these... Uh, the climbing groups that we see in our community start and it's because when I first started climbing and tried to continue to learn how to climb out here in Victoria at the the local climbing gyms I really just never saw any indigenous people and it was also reflected when we would climb outdoors and we would actually be on the land as I described earlier you know being on the land for me, always requires contemplation and intention and consciousness of whose lands we're climbing on. Have we asked permissions or gone through uh, consent-based practices and protocols to reach out to local nations, to ask for permissions to climb in these spaces? What are the relationships involved? And all honestly, too, it's also a place to just enact, like, self-care. It's a place where I can breathe. I can be out of society and I could just, you know, be on the land. And so, when I would go to the Craig and I would never really see any indigenous people there, it would constantly just be, um, you know, lots of, lots of white folks. A lot of the conversations, societal, you know, behaviors or like cultural conversations and whatever would, would reflect their communities. And it's, it's, so, you know, certain jokes or certain things like you just can't necessarily, they don't necessarily align. And, you don't ever really feel like you're at home in a space that you really want to feel at home in. And so I created the, um, I actually went on Instagram and I just started looking for like native climbers and I came across this uh, woman, Ashley Thompson. She's an amazing Ojibwe, Anishinaabe woman from Red Lake First Nation. And she was climbing and I emailed, like I messaged her and I was like, yo, it's like, you're native. And you're climbing and (laughs) started an Instagram friendship. And from that friendship, we have like visited each other. She's come and visited us here. I've gone and visited her. 
she's also um she's doing her phd she's like a badass rock star in all of the ways and we just started this relationship and she was um really involved with natives outdoors which is a native outdoor advocacy and educational group uh based down south and uh and i kind of wanted i was like yo ash you should start this indigenous women climb group like let's just get it out there so we could share photos and images and representation of indigenous people and bodies and women climbing but she was super busy so i'm like all right i have the this is my responsibility i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and so i created um an online you know like page for it through Instagram and just really have used that page to use as a springboard for more complex conversations around place, power, privilege and positionality within something like climbing, you know, climbing is not just climbing for some people who are not represented in outdoor industry or whose values and land-based values and, and protocols are not represented in the ways in the narratives of adventure, conquest and thrill and things like that. And so it's really used as a springboard to have these conversations. And with with it, I've been able to meet so many other folks um, from groups like Brown Girls Climb, um, folks at Flash Foxy, you know, Shelma, and um, who I know that you've spoken to, and, and mm -hmm. really like Brothers of Climb and all these different amazing groups who are doing really important work to create more space for representation of bodies and experiences within these specific activities, but to also do the work to decolonize and interrogate the colonial values that are really also represented in these specific activities as well. I don't, I don't know how to, we've covered so many things. I don't know how to wrap up a conversation that, uh, <laughs> that goes in so many directions, but, uh, I but, think that's so good though. Like everything is so connected, you know, and you, your questions were the, like the best because it's so great just to start all over the place because they are really connected, you know, and that's I think so. Like, uh, but I do want to know, you know, um, geez, you've, you've finished your PhD. What do you do when this is, you know, done? What, uh, what excites you, I suppose, about whatever's next? Yeah. So I currently work at the university in an educational role around decolonization and indigenization. And I'll be there uh, for a couple more months. And then in September, I'm actually going to start a postdoc. And um, I've proposed to in my postdoc is to actually explore through film international indigenous approaches to traditional birth governance essentially and so i'm going to be uh traveling and and living in between up here on the west coast and in northwest canada uh, a couple different communities that i have relationships to in guatemala mayan communities and then also a few different indigenous communities uh in the home territories of my of my partner in brazil and so it's going to be an international indigenous approach to birth as governance and we're going to be working towards the production of a, of a film, ideally, um, for that that piece of research or learning or knowledge, as knowledge mobilization. And so I'm really excited just to continue to be able to, to learn from community and center community knowledge as authority and really support the knowledge mobilization around land-based, place-based governance practices as well. So I'm really excited about that. And then in, I guess, in terms of climbing as well, I, uh, my partner and I have, are going to be starting or are, have started this year, our own small uh, film production company, which is called Wate Storied Learning, where we're really 
working with communities around self-representation and self-determination and telling our own stories and sharing our own knowledge and using film as a medium for that knowledge translation. And so um, we hope to work in a few different capacities around community governance and community wellness and, you know, community-led initiatives. But we also on the side also want to create and start creating more content and film content for folks of color and, and Indigenous folks in the outdoors and, and seeing more climbing films featuring women of color and Indigenous women and queer folks in climbing. And we have a, a, a solid list of people that we would dream to make films about. So that's kind of the dream, the dream project and moving forward in the future. And you know what, you know, like the more films we have, the more opportunities we have to sit down and eat popcorn. So <laughs> that in itself is the full circle right there. <laughs> That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section of the Story Untold website. That's storyuntold.blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There's t-shirts and stickers there. All of it helps to keep the show going. Or if you want to just get in touch, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast or on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.